RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Priority One is brought to you by our Patreon supporter, Jim DeVico. We thank him and all our other patrons for their monthly support. Command codes verified. Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on secure channel. Hello, Captains. You're listening to episode 393 of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, and your weekly report from the Star Trek multiverse. Recorded live on Tuesday, December 11th, 2018, and available for download or streaming on Friday, December 14th at PriorityOnePodcast.com. I'm Kenna. And I'm Anthony. And we're sorry to say that Elijah is off sick this week, but he should be back next week. And in the meantime, Anthony... What have we got on the show this week? This week, we're trekking out why the Picard series will feel a little different than Discovery. Discovery Season 2 is getting an extra episode. The writers of The Brightest Star explain its place in Star Trek canon. And two Hollywood players want in on Star Trek 4. In Star Trek Online and Gaming News, we'll tell you how you can help find homes for the rescued tardigrades through the Tardigrade Adoption Agency. And it's time again for the Priority One Armada's year-end live streaming event, and we'll have all the details. In our on-screen segment, we're talking about the latest Star Trek short trek, The Brightest Star. Later, Jace is here with another Treklet 101. And as always, before we wrap up the show, we'll open hailing frequencies for your incoming messages. Captains, remember that those hailing frequencies are always open, and we love to hear from you between episodes. So please reach out to us. We're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Priority One Podcast. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Priority One Pod. And you can even send us an email via incoming at Priority One Podcast.com. As we do every week, we'd like to thank you, our Patreon supporters. All of you who have made contributions at one point or another, With those pledges, we are able to keep the power flowing, the servers running, and the team producing. If you're considering a financial contribution, and we hope you are, you get access to additional content, extra on-screen discussions, past Trek seasons in review, and you'll be the first to hear special interviews and content from live events. For more information, visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash priority one. And one more way that you can help us out is to join our team. We're still looking for volunteer audio editors to help us out with the show. If you're interested, just email us. Incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com is the address. We will train you and give you the software you need. So if you'd like to volunteer for Priority One, just send us an email. Again, that's incoming at PriorityOnePodcast.com or head on over to our website. Now let's check out all the latest news from the Star Trek multiverse. I don't know. Then let's trek it out. Last week, CBS Chief Creative Officer David Nevins let slip that the upcoming Picard series is due to hit at the end of 2019. This week, Star Trek Discovery's showrunner Alex Kurtzman seems to corroborate Nevins' statement, telling EW.com, quote, The writer's room is broken about eight episodes, and we're moving quickly, and I couldn't be more excited about it, end quote. But Kurtzman also deep-fried some fresh hashtag Trek nuggets as well. Quote, It's an extremely different rhythm than Discovery. Discovery is a bullet. Picard is a very contemplative show. It will find a balance between the speed of Discovery and the nature of what Next Gen was, but I believe it will have its own rhythm, end quote. Kurtzman continued, quote, Without revealing too much about it, we get to take time to answer those questions in the wake of the many, many things Picard's had to deal with in Next Generation. More grounded is not the right way to put it, because season two of Discovery is also grounded. It will feel more real world, if that's the right way to put it. End quote. Follow the link in the show notes to check out the full article. So, 
this is pretty cool, and um, I think one mm-hmm. of the things that they also mentioned was that this is that the Picard series is going to be filming in California, which yep. is a departure from Discovery filming in Toronto. And I know that part of the reason mm-hmm. they're going back to filming in California. I'm assuming Los Angeles, Hollywood area, um, is they did get tax incentive breaks for this, which is a common thing. It's usually why productions choose to film in a certain area uh, or a certain state or a certain uh, city. So this is this is news that is welcome, I think, but completely expected. Um, I, you know, one of the biggest draws, I think, that we have all agreed upon uh, with having Kurtzman overseeing this whole big Star Trek expanded universe concept is that we have the ability to do different feels of shows. So much like when we had Voyager and Deep Space Nine and Next Generation and they were very different feels for the show, I would expect the same thing. If they came out and said, oh yeah, Picard is going to be exactly like Discovery, just Picardy, they would be missing a major opportunity like that. Uh, plus, you know, all the things that we've talked about in the past, you know, a Picard-centric show is going to have to deal with some of the more human aspects of Picard and his life. Also not forgetting that Patrick Stewart is not a young man and he's not going to be rolling around doing, you know, Kirk rolls at Vasquez Rocks. You know, we're going to have something that's got to be necessarily a little slower paced. So I don't think anyone's surprised by this news. Um, I do think it's welcomed, especially, you know, for those people who criticize the style of Discovery. I think you make a good point, too, because I think actually Voyager was not that different from Next Gen in the early seasons. It, they they really need to evolve. And, and, and Michael Piller even mentioned once that they halfway through Voyager, they would look at other TV shows like ER and West Wing, and they would start to sort of emulate those styles more with the walk and talks and things like that. So the style got to evolve over time a little bit. I feel like in today's, you know, modern television, you really have to establish a tone early on and carry that tone throughout the show. And I feel like what Kurtzman is going to be doing, like you said, is create these different feels and they're going to be more precise and more complete. And they probably are not going to evolve over the series. They're going to be what they are from the beginning all the way through to the end. And I I think that the Picard series does need to be different than Discovery. Discovery needed to catch you. It needed to grab you. It needed to bring you into the story. We already know Picard. We know his history. And now we get to see a reflection of that in this new show in a new time in a new era. And I'm I'm very excited and looking forward to that. I, I will say that there is one aspect of this news that disappointed me slightly and that was off of the back of Kurtzman's quote uh, that the, the, the Picard series is going to have its own rhythm I am disappointed in the lack of like samba rumba jokes you know off of um, Insurrection. I mean we are celebrating <laughs> the, a, an anniversary for Insurrection as well. Yeah and you know I we know that Picard's got moves so I'm disappointed in the lack of those jokes. <sighs> Former Enterprise Captain William Shatner and current Enterprise Captain Anson Mount, or is that the other way around? I hate temple mechanics. Anyway, the two Star Trek stars set a course for one of our favorite places over the weekend, the Star Trek, the original series set tour in Ticonderoga, New York. And while we could talk about the Pike-era additions to the set tour, Bill Shatner sharing a few bottles of Kirk Bourbon with patrons of the VIP event, or Anson Mount's brilliant impersonation of Jonathan Frakes, the big news was about Star Trek Discovery. TrekCore.com is reporting that, according to Mount, Discovery is adding an episode to its second season. That brings the season two total to 14 episodes. Mount also added that the extra episode has extended his stay in Toronto, where the series is filmed, until December 21st. Discovery's sophomore season debuts on January 17th, 2019 on CBS All Access. I actually was a little surprised by this because I feel like the first season they extended the episodes because of the change in in leadership and (laughs) <laughs> Although they did have a change in leadership in season two, now that I think about it, so... Yeah, I was I was going to go straight <laughs> in there with the cynical take, because one of my biggest takeaways from season one is that they should have just stopped at, at episode 13, be, and it would have been much better. Um, and so I'm a little cynical. <laughs> Can't you just, in uh, instead of making the season longer, just uh, just make it fit into 13? This is like Spinal Tap all over again. 
like yeah, but it goes goes to eleven. It's one. Well, it's can't one you just more. make ten it's one louder? More. But it's one more. It's <laughs> one louder. Just make it fit into well, thirteen. Like get an editor. Sorry, that's a really that's a really flip way of saying it, but um, I'm slightly cynical about it given given what happened with um, season one. I do have some mixed feelings. I will say I completely disagree with you about season one. I think that I think that they they needed those episodes. I don't think that they fit together as well as they could have, but I feel like I feel like you needed that complete story and that wrap up and and the ending and I and I'm I'm fine with with how they did that and what and the story that they told. Um I I do have mixed feelings about adding episodes because, you know, in in filmmaking you always and, and in film editing or, or or television editing you you always think in terms of pacing and you think in terms of you know beats and things like that and and it's my worry that when you sit down and you plan out a season a story arc like you do in modern television that they're now adding an extra beat onto it and I, I just feel like, you know, you, you guys, you know, you guys did this in season one. You should have gone through the growing pains then. And then you should be able to tell the story the way that you had planned it. And, and so in my mind, are they extending the story that they created or are they adding on a new part to that story that then won't feel quite as though it fits in? And so... Um, I sort of have conflicting feelings about it. The recently released short trek, The Brightest Star, tells the origin story of everyone's favorite prey hero. While the response has been largely positive, many are asking for more. More Giorgio Saru correspondence, more Giorgio Starfleet haggling, more Ba'ul. The writing staff hears you, and they have hit media, both conventional and social, Hard. In an interview with Sci-Fi Wire, episode co-writers Bo-Yeon Kim and Erica Lippolt talk about how the episode took shape. Kim told Sci-Fi Wire that the writers didn't want Kaminar's residence to seem primitive and, quote, I found myself referencing the Japanese occupation of Korea quite a bit, in particular the systematic oppression that occurred over the course of 35 years, that ultimately shaped Korea and how Koreans behave today, end quote. There was also reference to Star Trek The Next Generation's Season 2 episode Pen Pals and the parallels between the two prime directive-driven stories, with Kim saying, quote, As we began exploring Saru's backstory in the writer's room, Pen Pals did in fact come up a lot as it dealt with a pre-warp species, end quote. Lippold later outlines how Giorgio's assistance does not violate the Prime Directive, so check out the link to the article in our show notes, and we will be discussing this a little bit later in our on-screen segment. Finally, the writers are promising more to come. In a tweet dated December 6th, Boyan Kim said, quote, We know you have more questions, but trust us that they will not go unanswered. Winky smiley face, end quote. Side note, there are some great behind-the-scenes photos from The Brightest Star on both Boyan Kim and Erica Lippolt's Twitter feeds, so be sure to check them out. I do appreciate them sort of reaching out and talking a little bit about the backstory of this episode because there is definitely a lot of desire to... Like, in many of these short treks, we've we've had unanswered questions. We've had things that we want to know more about. I feel like there's even more of a desire in this episode because we, a lot of us connect with Saru. A lot of us really like Saru as a character and we want to explore mm-hmm. his backstory more and Georgiou. We, we, we appreciate mm-hmm. them both and we want to know more about them. And I feel like this is a time in that history that begs to be explored, even if it's a comic book or a novel or something. But this really needs, we need this story and we need this backstory and this relationship. And um, I know there was a little bit in, in some of the previous novels, but I I want more. I want more Lieutenant Georgiou. Like, that fascinates me. Like, that that's crazy. Well, it's, it's interesting because uh, if I remember correctly, uh, both of these writers are still on the writing staff. For Star Trek Discovery, um, so they actually have the potential to make some influence uh, there. And this story, because I know we talked a little bit when we when we did the the Tilly one about whether we're gonna whether we're gonna reference this back again, whether we're ever gonna hear of this again. That could stand alone. This one um, potentially, there is more to explore. There there are more questions to be answered. And like I said, we'll we'll talk about this a little bit more in depth uh, later on in the show. Uh, but it's great to see that the writers are really engaging with the audience and with the fans on this particular episode and how it's playing out. That's really great to see. And finally, two Hollywood players are vying for more Star Trek on the silver screen. First, 
Established Star Trek vet John Cho tells ThePlaylist.net that he's optimistic that a fourth film will get made, but admits he hasn't heard anything yet. Cho says of Star Trek, quote, I think it's an important part of American popular culture that speaks to America's best impulses. And I think there will always be a place for Star Trek films, and I just hope to be in it, end quote. Cho says he's bullish about making another film because, quote, the last film has a cloud over it. Losing Anton Yelchin after the last one, and for me, it would be important personally to make one more at least, end quote. Cho isn't the only person itching for another Star Trek film. Mission Impossible Fallout director Christopher McQuarrie told Forbes, quote, Star Trek is one of those doors I mentioned. If that door opened, I would gladly go through it. I am a huge fan of Star Trek. I grew up on Star Trek. The Wrath of Khan is one of my favorite movies of all time, end quote. Yeah, so um, yet yet again, I feel like Star Trek Four. It, it's like we get a nugget and then, sorry, we get a hashtag Trek nugget and then we get nothing and then we get another star saying they'd like to do it but they haven't heard anything about it. It's not even real yet and it feels like it's dragging on. Um, so I hope that some things start to move a little bit um, because, you know, John Cho is right. Beyond came out in the summer of 2016. So it's two and a half years ago now. It's time for another one. It's time for another one. It's time for a little bit of um, freshness to it. And I hope that they can make it work. The things that we've heard so far with the director, I can't remember her name, attached to it sound great. And I would like them to move on it. And as for Christopher McQuarrie, I am all for action film directors directing Star Trek films. because they're fun to watch. And first and foremost, for me, Star Trek films need to be enjoyable to watch, but then also have that message along with them. So I'm I'm for it. I would love to see that, but I'm, I'm sure that there are also a lot of directors who would love to have their hat in that particular ring as well. Yeah, I mean, I I almost feel like, you know, the, the Kurtzman television Star Trek is the hair in the tortoise and the hare. You know, it's just charging along at full speed. <laughs> head hair, and I'm going, where is this analogy going? I'm sorry, it's, I interrupted you. It's Kurtzman TV the hair. is the hair. Kurtzman the is rabbit, the hair. The rabbit That's what I'm hair. Is, Kurtzman the is the rabbit the hair, hair from okay. Tortoise and the Hare. Okay. He, you know, it just, it just, it just like charges along in spurts. You know, it's like, here's a season of Discovery. We're doing a second season of Discovery. We're going to do a Picard series. We're going to do an animated series. Here's some short tracks. Here's season two of Discovery. You know what I mean? And then then over here in Paramount, you have Star Trek Four, which is steadily progressing, being developed, and every once in a while, we get some news that lets us know that it seems like it's possibly still moving along. And I'm kind of okay with this because, uh, you know, there's so much. It's a great time to be a Star Trek fan. It really is. And and as much of this talk as they want to do, if they want to talk to every director in Hollywood who wants to do it, fine. Great. That's fantastic. I'm going to dream. But the best part is I don't have to rest all of my dreams. I don't have to put all of my Trek eggs. I don't have to put all of my Trek nuggets in one basket. I can spread them out. <laughs> you can spread, so while, spread Trek nuggets everywhere. So while while they're <laughs> while they're taking their sweet time, I don't have to I don't have to like obsess over it. I can go and watch yeah. the short treks, the Star Trek, you know, the new Star Trek uh, season of Discovery. I can I can watch the season one of Discovery. That's what's so great about this time is that it. Will they make Star Trek 4? Probably. I think there'll be another Star Trek movie in the in the Kelvin timeline. Sure. Yeah. When it happens, I don't really care. I've got enough Star Trek to last me until then. I have a okay, slightly left field question for you. Um, I know it's sort of common knowledge with air quotes that Star Trek fans don't like the Kelvin timeline because it's different and it's weird and it's this like weird dangly appendage out here. No, hear me out. Do you think that um, with all of the new Star Trek coming out and how diverse it's turning out, so we've got animated series, Discovery, Picard, Short Treks, etc. Do you think over time that the, the Kelvin timeline films will become more accepted by the hardcore or diehard Star Trek fans um, because they're more used to a diverse appearance of Star Trek 
concepts? So uh, to answer your question, yes. All Star Trek will eventually be accepted by the hardcore fans because the hardcore fans evolve. Do I think it's for that reason? No. I think it's just time and reflection. And I think the more you watch something, the more you get out of it. It's the same thing with Voyager. It's the same thing with Enterprise. People are just now, hardcore Trek fans are just now experiencing Star Trek Enterprise for the first time. And they're saying, hey, that third season was pretty good. Oh, wow. That fourth season was some of the best Star Trek I've ever seen. Like, they're just now Mm -hmm. experiencing that and appreciating it. So, I and it's the same thing with the Star Wars prequels, you know? I mean, I'm a, I'm a big Star Wars fan, and I despised the prequels. But now that we have new Star Wars content coming out, I have grown to appreciate the prequels as being part of that greater mythology and that greater story. And I feel like it's the same way with Star Trek. The, the further we get from something, the more the more we appreciate it and the more it fits in and sort of rests and settles into the canon for the hardcore fans, in my opinion. Um, I actually would like to hear from our listeners on that particular question as well. And I guess that qualifies it as a community question. Do you think that the expanded Star Trek, expanded universe, multiverse, whatever you want to call it, uh, with the way that the television series are going will help um, the acceptance of the Kelvin Timeline films. Uh, Let us know in the comments for this episode at PriorityOnePodcast.com forward slash PO393, or you can answer our community question posts on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Now, let's find out what happened this week in the world of Star Trek gaming. Computer, status report. Status. Incoming message. I'm only in the mood for good news today. We're ready to dive into our gaming news for this week. Hey, it's Fleet Admiral Winters from the Priority One Armada. Thank you for joining us this week. Glad to be back, Anthony. Well, Captains, the doors are open at the Tardigrade Adoption Agency. Through your support, the Federation has been able to rescue these amazing creatures from a variety of situations and help them find their place in the galaxy. Follow the link in our show notes and take the Which Tardigrade Should You Adopt test. And after completing the test and learning which tardigrade fits you best, you'll receive email updates on your adopted tardigrade. So I got the Lieutenant Tardigrade, which I thought was pretty cool because it was a tardigrade in a Odyssey uh, command uniform. And uh, I just thought that was the cutest thing ever. I actually saved the image uh, and made it my wallpaper on my phone uh, right now. Nice, nice. So, uh, Winters, what uh, what uh, tardigrade did you get? I got the party tardigrade, <laughs> which I think is perfect. It's absolutely perfect. I suppose that's as close to a Guinness tardigrade as you can get, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, this guy's got a little party hat, and uh, he's a... Uh, uh, drooped over a balloon. <laughs> as soon as I seen this, uh, I, I got flashbacks back to Vegas and uh, my first time going to Vegas to STLV. Um, I, I'll never forget it. Uh, when Kenna arrived and uh, we were kind of showing her around and she goes, oh my God, Winters, do you know everybody? Because I'm like, hey, Paul, hey, John, hi, Sue, how, you know, I'm saying hello to everybody as we're walking by them. It's like, oh my god, you know everybody. <laughs> uh, I had just met so many people and I'd stayed up so many late nights and uh, yeah, this, this is right on the mark. This is spot on. Uh, so that's actually going to bring us to another community question this week. What tardigrade did the adoption agency pair with you? The Infinity Lockbox has returned along with the addition of a new Tier 6 starship. The Mirror Angle carrier is not just a T6 ship, but is also another level-scaling ship similar to the Walker-class prototype light exploration cruiser. However, unlike the Walker-class, you will unlock the full amount of weapons and console slots as you level up. You can start using the Angle carrier as soon as you finish the tutorial, and every 10 levels you will unlock more weapons and console slots. You will also immediately start gaining Starship XP towards unlocking the Mastery trait, but you will not be able to use it until you reach level 50. Super Area Denial is the Starship trait, 
While slotted, activating Beam Fire at Will or Cannon Scatter Volley will debuff foes' armor resistance for a short duration. This carrier also brings with it new hangar pets, the Mirror Universe Shuttlecraft. The ship is only obtainable from the Infinity Lockbox promotion which is currently live on PC and will begin on console January 7th. Check out the show notes for stats and additional information. So this is a pretty cool starship. Uh, first off, I love the look of it and the design. It just looks like a mean carrier uh, from the Discovery era, which is pretty cool. And the fact that it's a Mirror Universe ship is also pretty interesting. Yeah. But you you were pretty taken by the shuttlecraft. Yeah, the, shut, the, the shuttlecraft, I really like the design of those. And I like, you know, hope they introduce that as a playable vessel. Uh, from the sea store. I, I just think they look really, really cool and slick. I, I'd love to have that as my small craft. And one thing that uh, we didn't include in the notes here, but that we learned from the post was that this starship trait, when it's slotted, also affects your pets. Yes. When they use fire at will or, or scatter volley, which they get, they also will debuff uh, your target's armor, which which you you seem to think might be a little overpowered. Yeah, when I see that, a, a little flag goes up in my mind that's kind of like, right, that might be a little OP, but of course we don't know the exact stats or what the numbers are, but when I hear that, the first thing that goes off in my mind is this could be something that they're going to nerf in the future if it's a little bit OP. It just, it's waving that flag that says, I could potentially be OP. And yeah, because, you know, you think about it, you're debuffing your foes or your enemies, and so are your pets. You could see that stacking quite a lot, you know? So, I don't know. The numbers might be spot on and they do nothing with it, but if it's really, really good at debuffing enemies, it might end up getting a nerf at some point in the future. But who knows? We'll just have to wait and see. Speaking of lockboxes, from now until December 20th, captains can save 20% on keys and keyring bundles in the C-Store. Woohoo! Additionally, there is a special bonus when purchasing bundles. Every pack will also include a single ultimate tech upgrade, Woohoo! which when applied to an upgradable piece of equipment, will instantly set both its mark and quality to maximum with no dilithium cost. Yeehaw! Special promotion is only available until Monday, December 17th. Also this weekend, it appears the Tholians are tightening their webs. Captains on all three platforms can queue up for a Tholian Red Alert weekend. And finally, captains on PC can take advantage of a bonus marks weekend. From now until December 17th, any content that provides fleet or reputation marks will reward 50% more than the normal amount. Moving on to Priority One Armada news, as a special treat, this Saturday, December 15th, we will be hosting a special 12-hour live stream on our Twitch channel. Starting at 12pm Central Time, join us as we team up with members of the Priority One Armada and our Twitch viewers for 8 hours of viewer's choice. During this time, our viewers will have a chance to win some great prizes on the Wheel o' Winters. We are giving away some things like tech upgrades, lockbox keys, ships and much more. Then, at 8pm Central Time, we kick off our last episode of Priority One Armada Live for this year. We will discuss the latest in Star Trek Online and Priority One Armada news. Then we will beam down for a gauntlet of away missions, battle zones, and to Q's Winter Wonderland and whatever else we can do. Oh, before I forget, we will be giving away even more prizes during this time as well. So make sure you open your hail and frequencies to our Twitch channel so you don't miss out on all the fun at twitch.tv forward slash priority one. I am very excited about this. Oh, I, yes. Uh, as I mentioned to you, I actually took the day off from work because I normally yes. work Saturdays. I plan on being involved for the entire time. And, awesome. Uh, and hopefully I'll get to pop in on this stream itself um, once in a while, maybe. Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Definitely. You're more than welcome to uh, join us. We don't want these uh, 12-hour marathon live streams uh, back in June. Uh, it was actually at the end of our anniversary, as in the Priority One Armada anniversary. It was way more successful than we ever expected. Uh, it completely exceeded our expectations by light years. We're like, right, we have to do this again. And we thought, well, you know, end of the year, 
It's a great way to end out the final show for the year because we take a couple of weeks off over the holiday season. Uh, you know, then we come back in January. You know, we'll finish out the, the year on a 12-hour marathon live stream. So we're going to have loads and loads of prizes. Uh, we're going to have members coming in uh, for a chat. We'll be finding out what their favorite story missions are, what their favorite captains are, what their favorite Star Trek series is, all that sort of stuff. Hopefully should be a lot of fun for for everyone who uh, participates and um, yeah hope to see you all there ah, it's going to be so much fun I hope uh, I hope everybody listening can join us again that's going to be on twitch.tv forward slash priority one and starting at 12pm central time yes now let's trek in with Jace for his newest Treklet 101 <laughs> Hello Captains, this is Jace with the latest edition of Trek Lit 101. This episode we take a look at IDW's Star Trek Discovery Succession. This four-part limited series is now collected in a single volume, along with the Discovery Annual, which we previously reviewed on the show. Succession teams up disco writer Kirsten Beyer with longtime Trek Comics scribe Mike Johnson, with art by Angel Hernandez previously seen in the Manifest Destiny series, to which we'll be returning soon. In my opinion, this is an all-star cast, and they do not disappoint. Issue 1 sets the stage for us in the Mirror Universe, starting with the first of several short flashbacks that help to flesh out more of the backstory for what we saw in Season 1 of Discovery, before jumping to the wreckage of the Imperial flagship Charon mere hours after we last saw it in what's past is prologue just as the ISS Shenzhou arrives on the scene. As acting captain Detmer investigates what's happened, news of Mira Georgiou's apparent death spreads across the Empire. This triggers a series of plots surrounding the power vacuum left in her wake, including rivals to the titular succession, including, of course, Mira Michael Burnham, Lorca's remaining loyalist plants, and the survivors of Volk's resistance. Lots of familiar faces right off in issue one, as we get introduced to the counterparts of Cornwall, Amanda Grayson, Laurel, and more, such as the altruistic Harry Mudd. Issue 2 kicks it up a notch, as a cousin of Georgiou has taken the throne and orders a hard-line purge of Xeno scum for the Emperor. Sorry, got a little carried away with Warhammer 40k for a second there. His Nero-like, and that's the Roman, not the Romulan, quasi-madness brings some of the other factions together in an unlikely and very uneasy alliance, as a ship and captain from TOS is sent on a decisive mission to Quonos. Issue 3 resolves the fate of the Klingon homeworld and sends the action racing to Earth, where the alliance against the Emperor basically goes for the Wookiee approach and lets themselves get captured so they can be brought into the Imperial presence. I felt this was a trifle weak, but I get it. It's a trope of this kind of story after all. They managed this with some help from an unexpected quarter, bringing Lorca's followers, Michael, and the Resistance all into line. But naturally, it's not that easy. Issue 4, I can't say that much about in good conscience, as it turns everything up to this point on its ear. Not that there weren't sufficient clues and foreshadowing along the way, but in the end, the question of who will be the next Terran Emperor is answered, and the final page is a snippet from another captain's log, a fellow whose first officer would find the whole matter fascinating. Succession is a fun, fast-paced side story within the Discovery timeline. If you're generally a fan of Mirror story arcs, this is a must-read just for the entertainment value of seeing the parallel takes on well-known characters from the series. I especially enjoyed Aniram getting a lot of screen time and a pivotal role, and I hope that we see more of her and the other Discovery Bridge officers in Season 2. Tantalizing, since though the comics aren't canon, Bayer could always be teasing us a bit for things to come. Hernandez strikes a great balance between character and ship art, which I always find to be a challenge in sci-fi comics. Most artists are stronger in one area than the other. I also thought he made great use of multi-panel backgrounds in several sections, with the sub-panel showing movement or change only in the foregrounds. That's all for this month's Treklet 101. On screen. Well, Captains, welcome to On Screen, where we dis dissect, not discuss. 
Well, Captains, welcome to On Screen, where we dissect the latest episode of Star Trek. This week, Short Treks, The Brightest Star. Welcome to Kaminar, the idyllic home of Saru's species, the Kelpians. The picturesque seaweed farming village features beautiful architecture, shimmering water, lush pastures, and the farming of the native Kelpians for the presumed purpose of food. Saru explains via voiceover that his people are called and willingly sacrifice themselves to the technologically advanced Ba'ul in order to protect what he calls the Great Balance of Kaminar. A priest, bright lights, low, loud humming, and enough ganglia to feed the crew of the Cairon, and the brave Kelpian sacrifices are gone. In daylight, Saru and his sister wait for their father's return. He brings with him a piece of Ba'ul technology, but he is unimpressed by it and tells Saru it must be disposed of, as all fallen Ba'ul technology is. We learn that the Kelpians are a religious people, faithful to what they call the Watchful Eye and the Great Balance. Saru's questioning his people's place in the universe earns him his father's scorn. The Kelpians have accepted their place in the balance, as cattle, but Saru has not. Saru does not dispose of the technology left by the Ba'ul. Instead, he takes it apart, learns from it, and makes contact with… someone. He continues to ask questions of his devout father, even asking what will happen if Saru himself is chosen to reach Vahari for the next harvest. His father wearily tells him he will do as he must, be thankful for being chosen. Saru and his sister Sarana take a walk at dusk. Saru says his goodbye, and Sarana seems to understand. He makes his way to the top of a cliff and enjoys the view of his village. Then a bright light and a Starfleet shuttlecraft lands. The door opens and out walks Lieutenant Philippa Giorgio. The young officer explains that Saru has caused quite a stir, being the only member of a pre-warp culture to make contact with Starfleet. She pulled some strings and Saru can leave with her, but he may never return home. Saru contemplates the decision, but only briefly. He wants more. He will go. The end. So, I think you're with me in three seconds into this yeah. episode... And yeah. the Kelpians are farming kelp. I get it. Kelp. I get yeah, it. I get oh. it. Yeah, that was just. Yeah. <laughs> I honestly, literally, came on. They're there, and I just, I looked at the screen and I went, Kelpians, really? I, I literally paused it. First time watching it, paused it, and I had, I had to like have a discussion with myself in my mind. On if I could continue watching this <laughs> and take it seriously, I really did. It was a little too far on the cheese scale for three seconds in. It did compromise something a little bit. Um, but it does, to be fair, now it does actually explain a little bit because why are why are the Kelpians from Kaminar? Like, why are, okay, Ferengi are from Fer Ferenginar, Earthlings are from Earth, although, yeah, that's debatable. Um, Vulcans are from, or Vulcanians are from Vulcan. Why are uh, the people of Kaminar not Kaminarians? Um, so I guess, okay, that's why they call them Kelpians. Maybe the Kelpians are just one part of all these people. I don't know. The question for me with it, that this episode just completely blew my mind. All of season one of Discovery, Kelpians, or, um, the predator species on Kaminar was on Kaminar. Like I gave, I, I was led to believe, or I believed in my own headcanon, that everyone on Kaminar was pre-warp, and the Kelpians were a prey species on Kaminar. And this short trek, all of a sudden, they are prey to a spacefaring, if not warp-capable extraterrestrial species. Uh, and that kind of blew my mind. I'm not sure I liked it. I, I genuinely don't know how I feel about that, but it does explain a little bit about Kaminar itself. So it's, it's interesting that that was your takeaway from season one, because my takeaway was actually, again, internal discussion in my mind, thinking about Saru's backstory is, it was sort of implied to me that his species evolved as a prey species but that at a certain point they achieved warp technology and joined the federation or or was or was at least a 
spacefaring species. So I thought that his ganglia was more of like an evolutionary step that was almost no longer necessary, but it was just something that they still retained. That's sort of what I, what was implied to me in season one. But now what they've delivered to us is I'm very confused as to why, and this, this really was my biggest issue with this short, was if they have the ability to sense death and, and danger, is that when the machine turns on, they sense danger? Like, what, like how are they using that sense in the modern day Kaminar? Like, that's what I don't understand, is they're not being, because I thought they were being hunted like I, th- I'm pretty sure yeah, they even said. Yeah, that's that was my that take they away were hunted from the series, right? Yeah, and so, so in my mind, I thought that was the past, but that's fine. We now discover it's the present. But even in the present, they're not really being hunted; they're being plucked. Like I don't. It's almost like yeah, now yeah. they're not. They're not animals. They're fruit. <laughs> like yeah. Like and what's the point of the threat ganglia? Right, and that was yeah, my. That's my I, biggest issue with this. It, it negated a part of Saru's backstory that they pushed so hard and now it just doesn't quite mean the same thing. Yeah, I I agree. You know, one of the big things with Saru in season one of Discovery was that he had this intense fight or flight instinct and he had the threat ganglia and he could tend he could tell when danger was coming, etc. We didn't see any of that. He did not appear to be frightened at all of all of his friends and family being sucked up by the, you know, the giant <laughs> space monster. He was not, you know, he wasn't bothered at all. Um, and and I, I think that was a kind of a departure. My take on it is, is that this story was written to push an agenda and fit well enough with what we already know that it worked. And I and I actually think the story works. As a story, it works. I think it was a little kind of shoved in there because there's definitely a strong social commentary about oppression and the, the compliance of an oppressed people, like how they respond to their oppressors. I think, I mean, we discussed it in Trek It Out that that was literally one of mm-hmm. the, the, the things that the writers took inspiration from. I think there's a lot to talk about there and to unpack and there's religious cults and all sorts of things, protection racketeering, you know, like (laughs) there's all sorts of things to to unpack there. But um, I think it was a little bit of a stretch from what many of us took to be the truth of of Saru's backstory. I agree with you on that. I I think there's definitely some ways to um, explore it and clarify it more. Like it's quite possible that, and and this just occurred to me, that perhaps there's an area of the planet that when you go beyond it, uh, it is much more of a hunter-prey relationship, and that the balance that they seek, it, it, this is this is the arrangement that they have to have in order to um, to live in peace. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's the they have to get you know, you know, so many of them have to get. You know, plucked up and beamed up to the buffet table in order to maintain their peaceful existence within their boundaries, which is interesting. And if if that's the case, and and you know the the writers had mentioned they might explore this further, and so so that's exciting. Um, I, I think definitely one of the best moments of this episode is when um, uh, Lieutenant uh, Giorgio shows up at the end. Uh, that was absolutely incredible, and there's some, there's some sort of, uh, you know, there's there's some parallels to the to the episode uh, pen pals uh, that the writers talked about, and also whether or not uh, the prime directive was, um, if whether or not there was a conflict with the prime directive. What do you think about that? Did uh, Georgiou violate the prime directive in her in her contact with Saru and allowing Saru to return with her? I th- I think this might be one of the like the little asterisks that comes off the end of the prime directive. Uh, first of all, did we have a prime directive at this point in history? I can't remember. Yes, well, back then, did we? I mean, in TOS, in TOS, there's the prime directive existed in TOS. It was called General Order One, but yes. Right. Okay. I think this falls under a special case. I, ultimately, no, I do not think she violated the prime directive. I think that it's a uh, it's a bit of a an edge case, I think. Starfleet were put in an awkward position. They have been contacted by a pre-warp being. And what are they going to do? Leave him there? Uh, you know, it's... He... 
he would like to, you know, he's he's got into contact, that potentially could be a major issue. They they were either faced with first contact ahead of a pre-warp society, or they were faced with uh, making contact with him and 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 getting him to leave. I, I really don't think there was much other much other choice. So no, I do not personally think she violated the Prime Directive. Except why did she take a shuttlecraft down? <laughs> that, do they could they not have beamed the down? shuttle though i like i'm like uh, why would you land this giant ship with let's, bright lights and then take off in front of yeah. everyone like i was like yeah ah. let's let's zoom around above where they're working for like a few minutes too like bright daylight let's 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 make it as obvious as possible you know the, the big mystery here is the, uh, what are they called? The Ba'ul? Ba'ul, The Ba'ul. Yeah. I think the mystery is, you know, we don't know. Maybe they fly around. Oh, we don't true, really yeah, know. Yeah. We don't really know the involvement that. of this, of this hunter species in this, in this relationship, in this society, in this, uh, in this uh, ecosystem. So I, I, I think that if, if we ever see that species, I think we're going to understand the relationships better and the situation and, uh, a lot of these questions will be answered. So the corollary to the question of whether Giorgio violated the Prime Directive, um, she seemed totally chill with like leaving all that technology there because Saru didn't bring it with him. So th- are they making the assumption that Saru is just completely unusually hyper-intelligent, that everybody else is just going to bury it like all of the other things? And also, how often does stuff fall off of these space shuttles <laughs> that contains a computer? I was thinking it was a, like a roof tile. <laughs> It's not. It's got like a whole computer in it. Well, yeah, and it, well, it, it must happen often enough because um, Saru's father says we're forbidden to keep it. We have to dispose of it. How do they know that the Baul aren't like chucking them down? Computer is going like here. This will help with your word processing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like it's a, the, the premise of that technology being because he's left it behind. He's left it behind, and his sister's gonna find it. And she's going to know exactly what happened. And for all we know, the Ba'ul have been trying to contact them and say, why do you keep sending people (laughs) up to be eaten? Like, you guys are delicious and all, but really, I mean, we're full, so stop. But nobody picks up the phone. Um, and that that kind of, that, that question about the technology also leads into my sort of last question. You know, it's a really... Uh, sort of uh, touching and emotional moment at the end when Giorgio asks Saru whether he's really ready to leave. Because he asks, you know, can I ever return home? I don't remember exactly how the uh, exchange went, but she's she's basically like, no, you can never come back. And I don't understand why she said that. Because I think the only answer you can give is maybe one day. Because the next person who finds that computer is also going to get in touch with Starfleet, or maybe they're not. Maybe they're going to start educating themselves. Maybe they're, you know, then then we are in like a prime directive first contact situation. This could happen in Saru's lifetime that they could become aware of extraterrestrials. I mean, beyond the Ba'ul. Um, So I think it's completely the wrong thing for her to say that he can never. I mean, it's very dramatic. But it's just wrong. I actually disagree. I think that the reason he can't return is because that would be a violation of the Prime Directive. The knowledge beyond his home, he could not come back and pass that on. And then even him coming back would raise questions of where did you go? It, it would, it would, in, in my opinion, it would shake the very foundation of their belief system, and that would be a violation of the Prime Directive. And I think that. For all we know, maybe Saru did dispose of it after he received the message that he was going to be visited that day. Mm-hmm. And then, and so, it, it, you know, I, I mean, that's, in my mind, that's probably what he would have done to keep his his family and his sister out of harm's way. But I, I actually agree with her saying that. And I think that, I think that that is the right answer and that he, he would not be able to go back because of the prime directive. However, I think we're going back there someday. Yeah, there's too much dramatic potential there to, to just leave it forever yeah so uh just to sum up here you know um i think we've hit on sort of the major points that we wanted to discuss um did you like it did you enjoy it i did i very much enjoyed it um i've seen it three or four times now and um 
and and I do like it. I you know Saru is just one of those characters like Data, like Spock. You you just really connect with, and he's a fan favorite. And seeing anything that explores his backstory, just like seeing any episode of TNG with Data, was always one of my favorites. And so uh, I really appreciated the story, and I appreciated the insight into his background. And I I look forward to more you know stories with Saru and and hopefully Georgiou as well. And I um, I think they did a fantastic job overall. Yeah, I and I would agree with you. I enjoyed it as well, as long as I didn't think too hard about it. <laughs> Because <laughs> then, then I started to get into some trouble. But you know, as a as a as a piece of television to sit down and enjoy, it was it was worth it was worth my CBS All Access subscription. Well, that's it for this week's on screen. Now let's open hailing frequencies and see what's incoming. Message coming in, sir. Hailing frequencies. Open. See, we are getting to know each other. Well, captains, hailing frequencies are now open, and we're ready to receive all of your incoming messages. Episode 392's first community question was, what did you think of The Brightest Star? Did it answer all of your questions about Saru's origins? From Patreon, Thaddeus Edwards says, Brightest Star brought up so many questions for me regarding the application of the Prime Directive. While it does appear that Giorgio got strings pulled to reach Saru, it doesn't seem wise that the offer to enter the Federation is given to him without knowing more about him or the Kelpians as a society. What if he required symbionts in order to maintain proper health and stability? He was curious about things off-world, but such an all-or-nothing decision came across as a huge gamble as opposed to a new adventure. Okay, we don't know much about the decision process that happened in the Federation, but I'm assuming that they had some kind of, like, duck-blind thing going on. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Is it in Insurrection? It is another Insurrection reference. I kind of resolve that in my brain that they've actually been observing them for a while. Um, so I'm not too worried about that. But but he's right. You know, they don't answer that question of what does he eat? What does he breathe? Via email, Ken Ray. And yes, the Ken Ray from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, emailed us and said... Actually, it raised a few questions for me. Like, who are these people in the sky to whom the Kelpians sacrifice themselves and why do they do it? And how can Starfleet allow the predator-prey relationship to go on the way that it does? Now, this is a question we did not talk about on screen that, honestly, we could do a whole other show on. So, Starfleet knows that the Ba'ul are there farming the Kelpians... And they're fine with it? Like, the Ba'ul are spacefaring, at least. Um, We're given to presume that maybe they're warp capable. We don't know whether this is Federation space or whatever. But did nobody say, like, maybe you shouldn't do that to an intelligent species? So this is a great observation. And so let's assume it's not in Federation space and that the Federation really has no jurisdiction whatsoever. So then it falls under the prime directive again. But then this is going to be something where you have we have to go back and look in previous episodes of Star Trek and has there ever been a similar situation where there was a prime directive instance where the Federation or Starfleet did not interfere or did interfere in a species consuming another species? No example jumps out to me. And I'm pretty versed in in most Star Trek. And I and I would like to think that I, I don't know everything. And I, and I certainly don't remember every single episode. And I haven't even seen every single episode. But I would like to think that if there was a similar situation, that it would jump out at me. The only situation I can think of off the top of my head is the Tosk episode of Deep Space Nine. And I think you've seen that one, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the one where Tosk is hunted. But even then, Tosk seems to be able to at least operate and have knowledge of a warp-capable equipment. So I think that this is kind of a new concept, and I don't know how Starfleet would approach that. I think from what we've seen in the episode, we have to assume that the Prime Directive is in effect, and therefore they cannot interfere. And that's one of the reasons why this is a special case where she goes down and allows Saru to come back with her. Let me tell you, if uh, Jim Kirk was in charge of things, the Ba'ul would not be still eating the Kelpians. Disrupt I'm just that ecosystem right away. Prime Directive, be damned. That is an accurate um, impersonation. 
Uh, let's move on to our next piece of feedback, shall we? Uh, this is coming from Facebook. Carlos Perez says, The brightest star has been the best short track so far. But still, I didn't get the impression that the Kelpians were being hunted. Are they being eaten by the rock or being sent somewhere? Dunno. And if they're being eaten, do they only do that five or six at a time? It just wasn't what I was expecting from the Kelpians, but Saru's hunger for something more is pure Trek at its heart. And I think this is kind of gets at the heart of what we were discussing in, in on screen as well. Like this is kind of, a, of an odd mechanic from what we, I think, expected um, off of the back of season one. Episode 392's second community question was, what are your hopes for the Picard series? Miniseries? One full season? Multiple seasons? From Patreon, Jim DeVico says, My hopes for the Picard series are that it be at least 10 to 13 episodes per season, and that it runs for a few seasons. I don't expect Patrick Stewart wants to put too many years into this, so I hope we can get two or three years out of him. I'd also like to see Megan Fox have a recurring role, and I have a feeling that last comment is especially Uh, for you, Anthony. Thank you, Jim. I'm going to have to go ahead and disagree with you on the Megan Fox recurring role, but that's just me. Yeah, well, we know from the Alex Kurtzman quotes that the season is at least eight episodes because he mentioned that they've broken eight episodes in the writer's room. I'm still banking on that it's 13. I feel like that's the default number for a season of television nowadays. And I think we're going to get at least two or three seasons. I think he's right. I don't think we need any more than that. I I think two or three is the most we need. Well, that wraps up episode 393 of Priority One, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. For more great podcasts like Mission Log and Mission Log Live, Women at Warp, and The Trek Files, visit podcasts.roddenberry.com. But before we go, here's our community questions for this week. Do you think that the Star Trek TV Expanded Universe will help the acceptance of the Kelvin Timeline films by Star Trek fans? And... What tardigrade did the adoption agency pair you with? Captains, you know we love hearing from you. So leave us a comment on our website at PriorityOnePodcast.com, on our Facebook page at Facebook.com forward slash PriorityOnePodcast, or find us on Twitter or Instagram at PriorityOnePod. Don't miss a thing from the Star Trek multiverse. Catch our episodes every Friday by pointing your favorite podcast app to feeds.PriorityOnePodcast.com. You can even join in on the fun while we record our episodes live on Tuesday nights at around 11.30 p.m. Eastern on Facebook. Keep an eye on our social media channels for details. And if that wasn't enough, be sure to spend time with Admiral Winters and the Priority One Armada. On Saturday nights, the Armada takes to our Twitch channel where they review the latest Star Trek Online and Armada news, as well as spotlight some of the amazing members in our community. Each week, we team up with you, the viewers, to earn things like reputation marks and dilithium. With regular giveaways, there is something for all STO players, new and old. Follow us on twitch.tv forward slash Priority One. And if you'd like to join the Armada, just visit PriorityOneArmada.com. Still not enough? Well, then be sure to watch The Cutting Room. Join Priority One audio editor Brandon Parker on Thursday nights and watch as he turns our Tuesday hijinks into Friday gold. That link again is twitch.tv forward slash Priority One. This episode of Priority One podcast is brought to you by our patrons through patreon.com. Find out more and add your support at patreon.com forward slash Priority One. Even if you can't make a financial contribution, please help spread the word about the show and invite your fellow Trekkies. It's your support that keeps us going. Don't forget to tune in to Priority One Productions' Guard Frequency podcast at GuardFrequency.com. Each episode, the Guard will take you inside the universe of your favorite space sims, including a tabletop adventure played out by your hosts. And Heroes Rise brings you up to date with the world of Dungeons & Dragons, Learn all about the latest publications, tools, tips, tricks, and traps in less time than it takes to kill a kobold. Head over to HeroesRisePodcast.com to discover their secrets. Thanks to our audio editors, Brandon Parker, James Golding, Rand Hurl, and Daniel Stevens. Thanks to producer Jake Morgan for assisting in the writing of our show and social media endeavors, including Title It Thursday and the awesome Survey Sunday. Thanks to our graphic artist and web designer, Henry Pomper. 
Thanks to the composer of our theme music, Chris Watts. Thanks to our syndication partners, Subspace Radio and Trek Radio. Thanks to Patreon associate producers, Navy Boats Lou and Jim DeVico. And most importantly, a big thanks to you, the Star Trek community and our listeners. Because without your ongoing support, none of this would be possible. Enemy ship on sensors. Red alert. Shields up. Su-no! Engage! Also, this weekend, it appears that the Thelonians, I almost said Thelonians. <laughs> Thelonians? Thelonians. The Thelonians. All right. Also this weekend, it appears that the... Captains on all three platforms can queue up for a... Th- <laughs> Podcast.roddenberry.com The Roddenberry Podcast Network.